Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 1-13. The word of God speaks to us. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word to us. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Derek. I'm the community director here. And uh, man, I feel super honored to be able to preach on graduation Sunday. Uh, I spent 11 years teaching in the public school system, and, uh, and so, man, uh, the, the, the steps that are happening in uh, the life of Liv and Rayleigh and Brinley and Annalise are, are huge steps. And I just want to say, ladies, like, we're so proud of you. Um, we love you, and we're, we're proud of, of where, you're, where you're headed. Um, th- there very well may be a time in the next few months or few years uh, when you're trying to figure out where you belong. And I just want to remind you that you're always welcome here, uh, that this is a place that you can call home. Uh, so just really proud of you uh, for this, this step. I was, I was thinking back to my own high school graduation, and um, I don't remember the ceremony so much, but I do remember that I, I got a first-generation iPod, uh, which was a, a really big deal for me. And, and then I, I took the money from my party and I went and I bought one of those big, chunky fossil watches, which was perfect. It went really well with my puka shell necklace. It was great. It was, it was awesome. Um, so I, I hope that this weekend uh, is just as much of a blessing to you as it was for me. Um, <clears throat> we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians now for almost nine months and if you were here when we first started uh, this book back in August, then you might remember where Paul starts this letter. He actually, he starts by affirming this church and reminding them how much he loves them. And, and in, in light of the last several chapters, which have actually kind of felt more like body blows than letters of love, I, I think it's worth remembering uh, what he says in chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. See, Paul loves this church. He, he loves them so much 
that he's unwilling to let them continue to walk in error. Right? This is, this is why he starts to offer correction. He, he appeals to them for unity. He, he reminds uh, this church that their bodies are not actually their own. He, he addresses marriage. He addresses divorce. He addresses sexual immorality. And then we land here. At chapter 13, where he says, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing just a little bit here, but basically, hey, church, as you live your life, love one another. Love your spouse. Love your kids. Love your parents. Think of other people before you think of yourself. And, and this moment in 1 Corinthians 13 feels a little bit less like a correction and, and, and more of a reminder. Right? See, I... I don't know that I've ever talked to anybody that would, that would tell me that love and kindness are not important, right? We, we can all agree on that, right? And, and I think that that's why 1 Corinthians 13 may be the most popular chapter in the Bible, right? Most of us have been to weddings where this, this passage was read. It doesn't matter if you're in a, a sacred context or a secular context, right? This, this, this chapter is used in movies. There have been hundreds of songs written using words from this chapter. And yet, it's, it's strange because I think that we would all co-sign on, on love being important, but, but, but the question remains, then why are we so unloving, Right? Why does our country and our community and, and even our church struggle to love those around us the way that we might like to? Right? Why do we have to have an armed guard at every one of our gatherings? Right? Why do I sit in conversations with, with somebody across the table from me and my head is telling me to pay attention and to care about and to love them and, and listen to what they're saying, but my heart is a thousand miles away, completely indifferent? Right? Why is our society so quick to label somebody as toxic for just having a different opinion than us? Why are we so quick to judge behaviors and actions without looking in the mirror? And, and, and why does, does the language of us and them live so deeply within our bones? See, I, I think if you read this book, then, then I would contend that love is, is actually the, the, the linchpin that holds the story of redemption together. We love because he first loved us. And, and Paul writes painful words to this church in Corinth because he loves them. Right? The, the words in this letter are actually for their good. So this morning I want to address one question. What do we need to reclaim in order to love people the way that God loves us? Let me say that one more time. What do we need to reclaim in order to love people the way that God loves us? As I was uh, beginning to think about this sermon, I Googled the word love. Uh, and, and here are some of the images uh, that, that came up, uh, at least some ones that were appropriate to show on a screen. So uh, we, have, we have, I don't know what that is, a bunch of hearts uh, the, the next thing here is this, like, sunrise. 
Is it sunset? Where's this path going? I, I don't really know. This next one's my favorite. Um, golly, where do I start? Uh, I, I, can, can you just imagine the photographer, like, coaching this couple through this? Hey, is, is there some way that we can get your bodies to make the shape of a heart? That feels really uh, meaningful. Like, okay. See, I, I think that we have, we have redefined love into a feeling that comes and goes, right? We, we think of love as safe. When we think about images that represent love, we think about hearts and teddy bears and roses rather than foot washing, rather than taking less so someone else can have more. Or, or, or offering a, a faithful wound to a friend in the form of a hard truth that might hurt their feelings. See, I, I think that we want peace and comfort more than we want to live a life of faithfulness. And this leads me to my first point this morning. If we are going to love the way that we have been loved, we have to reclaim a biblical definition of the word love. Listen to verses four through eight. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. See, these words, the ones that I just read, are on living room walls across our country. And yet, have we, have we really stopped to, to ponder the depth of suffering required to embody those words? See, see I, I think that we have actually neutered this passage uh, and tailored it to align with our culture, with our values, rather than submitting to the authoritative word of God. Let me show you, let me show you what I mean. I'm not sure that it's helpful to think about these four verses as a specific definition of love, but to think of it more like a, like a comprehensive uh, description of, of love personified. Right? Paul uses a few phrases that say what love is, a few phrases that say what love isn't, but, but what I want to point out this morning is, is that there's actually one man in history who embodied every one of these words. See, we don't have to wonder what it would look like to live a life under the authority of, of this description because we have an account of every word lived out perfectly. See, Jesus' best friend, Peter, denied him three times, denied knowing him. Not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus responds to Peter by cooking him breakfast and inviting him to come follow him again. In this moment of, of utter patience and kindness. Right? Jesus wasn't arrogant or rude when the, the Pharisees uh, repeatedly claimed that they knew more about God than he did. And Jesus endured uh, tremendous humiliation and suffering on the cross, even though he had the power and the authority to make it all stop. But let's not just remember uh, this kind of cuddly Jesus, the one who healed the sick and invited children to sit with them, because 
Jesus' love wasn't always cuddly. Right? Remember the Pharisees? He looks at them and he says, hey, you're like whitewashed tombs, cleaned up on the outside and dead and lifeless on the inside. Another example of this like less cuddly Jesus is, is when he's, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's, uh, he's praying and he's asked his disciples, he said, hey, will you stay up and pray with me? Will you intercede with me? And, and of course, they fall asleep twice. And, and Jesus doesn't respond by thinking, well, they're tired, I'll just let them be. He actually says these words, which just cut deep. He says, so could you not watch with me for one hour? He shames the disciples for succumbing to their desires of their body rather than interceding with them. He, he holds this line of truth and isn't afraid to hurt feelings. He isn't afraid to hurt feelings with true words. See, he offers faithful wounds to his people. Jesus is the embodiment of love. He's patient and he's kind. He's not arrogant. He's not rude. And, and he endured hardships and rejoices in truth. So how does the life of Jesus compare to how our culture might define the word love? See, we might not use this language I would, I would contend that our love is actually conditional, right? You can experience my love as long as you have something to offer me in return, right? I love you because you make me feel important. I love you because you fulfill my sexual fantasies. I love you because, because uh, when I'm not with you, I feel lonely. I love you because you affirm me, See, see, at its core, I, I think that our, our culture's definition of love is, is selfish. It's centered around self and what we can get out of the deal. And, and, and friends, let's, uh, let's not pretend like, uh, like, like that view is outside of this room and not sitting here in our church. Right? There, there was a book written uh, several years ago, and it's not, a, it's not a perfect book. Many of you may have read it, but um, it's called Blue Like Jazz. Donald Miller wrote it, um, and, uh, and, and, and I think he puts his finger on some really difficult truth um, when he's speaking about the American church. He says this about his experience. He says, uh, there was love in Christian community, but it was conditional love. Sure, we called it unconditional, but it wasn't. There were bad people in the world and good people in the world. We were raised to believe this. If, if people were bad, we treated them as though they were either evil or charity. If they were bad and rich, they were evil. If they were bad and poor, then they were charity. Christian, Christianity was always right and we were always looking down on everybody else. I mean, I, I wish that those words didn't feel true, but I, I think that we've all experienced at one point or another an us and them mentality in our churches. But, but here's what's true. As, as followers of Christ, we must remember our condition without him. And, and, and then we must, we must meditate on our desperation for him 
and then meet those around us with the compassion and love that we've experienced from him. Right? I want our definition of love to be aligned with the words of 1 Corinthians 13. I want my love for my neighbors and for my coworkers and for my friends and for my family to be absolutely unconditional. I want to move toward tension in my relationships because that's what Jesus does with us. But when I'm honest, I think that all too often my love is contingent upon my own satisfaction in my own comfort. We have to reclaim a biblical definition of love if, if we are going to love people the way that God loves us. And, and that leads me to my next point. If, if we're gonna love the way that we've been loved, we have to remember who authored love. We have to remember who authored love. There's this long-standing uh, debate among the elders at Frontline, uh, specifically at Frontline Yukon, and it's not like a, a unity disrupting abate, debate, I don't, I don't think, um, but there's a particular group of elders uh, who are big fans of Peter Jackson's cinematic uh, representation of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Okay, and, and then there's another uh, group of men who would say that Peter Jackson's work is trash, uh, and one of them sitting right here, um, and, 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 and they are loyal to Tolkien's telling of this grand story, right? One side of the argument would say uh, that the movies are a cheap copy of the book, not telling the entire story not, and, and presenting uh, a shallow rendition of these characters. But the other side of the argument is that the movies offer an accessible entry point to hear this, this neat story of Frodo and Gandalf and the quest to destroy the ring to rule them all. Now, I, I think that this argument is actually helpful for us this morning um, because there's, there's these two characters uh, in, in this trilogy. There's Samwise Gamgee and Frodo Baggins, and, uh, and, and, and their friendship is one of, the, one of the, the, the most important themes that runs through this trilogy. And, and we are presented now with two options of how to experience this friendship, right? We could watch the movie, which offers... I think, a somewhat flat, counterfeit representation of this friendship. Or we could read the books, and we could experience the friendship the way that Tolkien intended it, full of depth and color and, and beauty. See, if we want to understand the nuance of the way that these two, of these men, two men love each other, uh, that, then we have to experience the friendship through the mind of the man who authored it. Right? It's, it's easy to look around at worldly influences and, and let them help us figure out how to love. Right? But these are just cheap, flat, counterfeit representations of love. And we can't expect to have a robust understanding of love without looking to the author of love. Listen to verses 8 through 13. It says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, but we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I, I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up the 
childish ways. For we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So faith, hope, love, abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, I I understand as I read that passage, there are probably some questions that jump into your mind, right? What's the perfect? What's, uh, what's the partial? What, what exactly is happening here? And I want to ask you real quick to, to set those questions aside. We're going to be preaching specifically on uh, verses 8 through 10 in a couple of weeks, and we're going to address some of the intricacies of those verses. But what I do want to point to this morning is, is the, the forward-looking eternal nature of Paul's language in these verses, right? Verse eight says, love never ends. Verse 10 looks ahead to the great day when Jesus returns and makes all things new. And verse 12 says, now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. See, there's a day coming when when we will love perfectly, when we'll understand the love of God, not as a child understands things, but, but as an adult does. When, when we will no longer see things dimly, but we'll see them clearly. Now, now imagine that day with me when, when Jesus has fully revealed his kingdom here on earth. At that moment, we will no longer have faith that we'll one day experience communion with him because it'll be realized We'll no longer have to grasp to the hope that we have found in Jesus because we'll be experiencing his unending presence. But we will abide in his love forever. But, but here's what's a little bit mind-bending and, and also uh, great news for us this morning is that eternity doesn't just go forward. It also goes backward, right? It's eternal, so, so stay with me, if, if, if God is the alpha and the omega, if he's the, the beginning and the end, if he always has been and always will be, then that means that at the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, love existed. It existed rich and perfect and unconditionally between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 4 says that God is love, that God created love. He is the source of love. And then he set his love on us. D.A. Carson uh, calls God's love self-originating. Self-originating, which means fully unconditional because we can't offer him anything in return. Listen, Listen to Carson's words here. He says, When a man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration of, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. But God loves what's unlovely. If, uh, as John 3.16 says, God loves the world, it's not because the world is so lovely that God can't help himself. God loves the world because it's what he is. See, if, if we're going to love others the way that God loves us, then we have to set our eyes and our hearts 
on the reality that love is not just something that God is good at. Love's not just something that God stumbled upon and decided to copy, like Peter Jackson copied Tolkien's work. Right? God is the author and the source of love. And, and just like Jesus, who is God, the, the love of God is not tame and it's not cuddly, but it is good. So, so let's be a people who look to the source of love rather than trying to, 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 cop or to, to, uh, to imitate society's uh, thin copy of it. So we must reclaim a biblical definition of love. We, we must remember who authored love. And finally, if, if we are going to, to, to love the way that, that we've been loved, we have to reexamine the heart behind our actions. We have to reexamine our heart behind our actions. As we read this chapter, we can't remove it from the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Right, so, so verses one through three come right on the heels of chapter 12 where Paul is emphasizing the importance and the beauty of the, of the body. Right, Bryce taught on this last week, but the, the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, or the head to the feet, I've got no need of you. Right, Paul is, is, is condemning this church for disunity in the body and ultimately a, a loveless use of gifts. Gordon Fee, uh, commentator, uh, sums up the context of this passage um, when he describes the Corinthian church like this. He says, in short, they have a, a spirituality that has religious trappings. So, so gifts, tongues, prophecy, these things. But has abandoned rather totally genuinely Christian ethics with its supremacy of love. See, that the church in Corinth wanted the kingdom without the king. Right? When, when, when Jeff and Bryce preached through chapter 12, they both made it clear that these gifts should ultimately point to Jesus, our king, the embodiment of love. That spiritual gifts are not, are not the goal in and of themselves. They're a, a foretaste of the arrival of the kingdom of God made possible because of Jesus the remaking of all things good as a result of the love of the Father. So it's in light of, of, of all of that context that, that we hear Paul's words in the beginning of this chapter when he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's, uh, it's these three verses that have weighed particularly heavily on my heart this week. Because Paul is clearly telling us 
that we can do all of the right things. Not even the right things. We, we can do all of the miraculous things, right? We, we, we can do all of the extreme things. We can actually do all of the impossible things. And, and, and if we are not loving, then we are missing the target entirely. We can desire the highest gifts and pursue them all day long. You, you, can, you can muster enough faith that would move a mountain. And this is what gets me and pierces my particularly dark, dark heart is, is that we could give away all that we have. Sell our house, our cars, empty our bank accounts, pool all of that money together and, and give it to those who need it and fulfill needs. And if that's not accompanied with the love of Jesus then we're wasting our life. So where do we go from here? Because I've, I've spent most of my time this morning reminding us that we have a warped view of love, that we've forgotten the author of love, and that even our most well-intentioned actions are pointless without love. So... So maybe you're going, okay, where's the hope? Where's the hope? Well, for the hope, I want to point you to the first two words of chapter 14. Where it just simply says, pursue love. Pursue love. Two simple words that give me so much comfort this morning, because it's, it's behind those two words that Paul shows his understanding that love is not something that you have or you don't have. It's, it's, not, it's not as if some of us were born with the gift of love and others were born without the gift of love. Again, I keep referring to this chapter, but 1 John chapter 4 tells us that we love because he first loved us. And going on in that chapter, it also says that, that we know of God's abiding love because of the Spirit's presence within us. We have all we need to pursue love. There's nothing standing between us and loving our families and our coworkers and our neighbors the same way that God loves us. Unconditionally steadfastly, and fiercely. So, so maybe you're here this morning, and, and you're hearing my words on love, and to you they sound like some left-leaning, bleeding-heart, sentimental feeler who lacks a backbone to stand up for truth and morals. Perhaps you, you're hearing a sermon that's talking about unconditional love, and your gut reaction it is just to bring up all the objections and the problems that come from extending love without any strings attached. Right? If that's you this morning, man, I, I just ask you to interrogate your own heart and, and ask yourself why. Because if you expect others to meet a certain moral standard in order to receive your love, then that would make me think that there's actually a part of you that believes that, that your morals have earned God's love. If the thought of extending unconditional love 
causes you anxiety, then ask yourself, do you trust the Holy Spirit to shape and form and sanctify his people? Because if the answer to that question is yes, I, I do, then it's not on us. It's not our, our job to call balls and strikes, right? We've, we've already struck out. And God loves us because even though we're unlovely. Maybe there's a, 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 a maybe you're here this morning and, uh, and my words sound like uh, the opposite of what I just named. Some, some right-leaning, close-minded, legalistic enforcer who has a, a deep misunderstanding of culture and society in 2023. Perhaps words like uh, biblical definition of love and submitting to the authority of scripture make you squirm in your seat and look for the exit. If that's you this morning, then let me ask you the same question. Why? Is there a part of you that's so principled that you believe uh, that you have a more refined sense of morality than the Bible? Or maybe your motivation isn't that you believe that you know better than the Bible, that, but, but that you are afraid to take a risk and stand up for what's true. Hear me when I say this. There is a cost associated with loving the way that God loves you. Right? When we move toward tension, when we speak hard truth, when we offer words of correction, we are taking a risk to lose a friend, right? We, we might even end up being labeled as toxic, but we can lay our head down on our pillow at night knowing that we've been faithful to God's call on our life. See, see God calls us to love unconditionally. And he calls us to love by speaking and living in the light of truth. God didn't look at this broken world and, and just choose to dismiss all sins because he thought it was a kind thing to do. He, he actually fulfilled his perfect sense of justice and wrath when he sacrificed his son to take our punishment, the punishment that we deserved. And, and now, because of what God did through Jesus, we have hope in a new creation and eternity spent with him because of his great love for us. We are united to God through his love. And it isn't our job to fix this broken world because he's already done that. It's our job to show his love to this broken world. Would you pray with me?